On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Howard Yu. How come in places like Detroit, making cars, they pretty much get displaced by the Japanese and the South Korean, and these days, increasingly, the pressure from China. And yet, in Switzerland, in Novartis, Roche, they have their headquarters settling down in River Rhine for two centuries, and yet they continue to be so prosperous. Howard, thanks for making time. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So, uh, Howard, you've uh, got a pretty fun background, banking in Hong Kong, doctorate degree at Harvard. Um, You're teaching at at, uh, IMD, uh, wrote the book Leap. Got got a lot of fun things for us to talk about. At Harvard, you studied under one of my heroes, uh, Clayton Christensen. We're going to talk about that. But um, let's start off with the book. Tell us about the book Leap. Sure. Um, you know, the idea of the book really came about because of my executive education when I run program with manager and executive. And one of the big complaints that they always have is that they find their product getting commoditized, meaning they find it harder and harder to differentiate a product in the marketplace. Uh, they subject all kinds of pressure. And most importantly, they find there are copycat-like competition, low-cost provider that doesn't do exactly what they do, but sort of good enough. And so I get curious and trying to understand how do companies historically How do they prosper and thrive, not just for the next quarter, but over centuries? And what can we learn from the past and extract that lesson learned to apply to today and understand what are the seismic shifts going around us so that organization can really critically reinvent for its own future? Yeah. So, you know, for people who don't know IMD, the business school in Switzerland, um, and all the, especially executive education you guys do. It's, I, I understand you've worked with Mars and Daimler and Electrolux and all these companies. And um, when, when you think about that concept and how it applies, especially to the kind of folks that you're teaching, can you give us some examples or can you go, can you give us some of the principles from the book? Sure. Um, So the book really begins by looking at the sort of inevitable industry dynamics. So if you're looking at across all industry, from personal computer to mobile phone to wind turbine to solar panel to medical device, historically, a lot of this industry begins by pioneering company from the West, maybe from the United States or Europe, Western Europe. But inevitably, what we see is there are low-cost providers mostly begin from Asia, right? Either the Japanese or the South Korean, the Taiwanese, and increasingly in China, that they are really providing alternative, lower cost. Probably maybe the quality is not as good, but they are really eating the market share. 
So this becomes an obsession for many of my client or executive to understand if I want my company to continue to be successful, what do we need to do next beyond simply cost cutting? Now, in Switzerland, interestingly enough, there is a group of company in Basel in the eastern side of Switzerland, and they are pharmaceutical industry, right? So you have Roche, uh, you have Novartis. And historically, they have actually settled down in Basel for more than two centuries, so 200 years. So I get curious, and the book really trying to understand how come in places like Detroit making cars, they pretty much get displaced by the Japanese and the South Korean, and these days increasingly the pressure from China. And yet in Switzerland, in Novartis, Roche, they have their headquarters settling down in River Rhine for two centuries, and yet they continue to be so prosperous. Is this something that can be only explained by the industry dynamic, or there are managerial choices that managers across all industry can learn and selectively uh, adapt so that they can create a better future for themselves? Yeah, I mean... It I'm already hearing a lot of the Clayton Christensen disruptive <laughs> innovation type of type of elements here. And it's interesting. It feels like you've, you've kind of taken that and you're going to the next level. And, and where do we go from here? Um, do you have yeah. any comments on that? That's right. I mean, um, there is a, almost a big body of research that describe big incumbent really would subject to disruptive innovation in terms of the pressure and big incumbent in the in, in the face of new entrants, they are sort of powerless. And, and in fact, this is why there is a body of knowledge over the last 20 and 30 years that systematically showed us jumping through the S-curve for incumbent is really, really tough. What I'm trying to describe in my work is that it is indeed possible, although it's exceptional. But there are companies across all industry have continually to be able to survive and prosper and jumping through this technological S-curve and reinvent themselves. And the book is really trying to explore how. So in many ways, you can think about the work that I try to do is building on top of uh, really standing on the sh uh, shoulder of giants to understand, okay, so if disruptive innovation is so hard to navigate, However, if it becomes inevitable, what are the features and commonality across these pioneering company? We still see them very successful today, rather than succumbing to industry pressure. Yeah. What? What? Uh, so, as you were doing this research, what were some of the stories that jumped out to you, or what were some of the discoveries that that were fun for you to discover? Right. So one key themes that I discover over the years, particularly, let's pick pharmaceutical industry as an example first, is that I noticed that the reason that Roche and Novartis, whose predecessor Siba Geigy and Sandoz, the reason they are so successful is not so much around doing the same work, but slightly better than others. But over the years, over century, they really leap from one knowledge discipline to the next and then the next. Concretely, it turns out Sieber, Geige, and Sandoz, and Roche, all these pharmaceutical firms, uh, once upon in time, we're talking about the 19th century, they are not even pharmaceutical firms. They are a chemical dye manufacturer. They were making chemical for the textile industry to dye cloths. Now, so the hot bad 
for innovation back then, it's all about organic chemistry. In fact, the first blockbuster in the world is called Antipyrin, it's fever-reducing drugs, and is manufactured by a company called Hoyce in Germany, pretty much copied by the Swiss uh, along in Basel area. So the hotbed for innovation is really rooted in organic chemistry. Is this chemist experience some medicinal, medicinal benefit out of their invention? Now, you might remember uh, back in high school, we learned about the first antibiotics, Alexander Fleming. Everything that people begin to understand about antibiotics is the study of microbes, uh, microbiology. So is the finding of uh, fungus and bacteria modules to inhabit the growth of bacteria. So after the Second World War, all of these pharmaceutical firms from Sieber, Geige, and Sandoz together with Pfizer in the United States, they moved away from the study of organic chemistry into the study of microbiology. They sent in researchers to collect soil samples, etc., etc. Now you're looking at today, the hotbed for innovation for drug discovery is genomics, the study of DNA. Uh, the study of computational science, and so on. So the long history of pharmaceutical company is really the leap from one knowledge discipline to the next to the next, from organic chemistry to microbiology, and finally to genomics and bioinformatics. Um, so, so that is the fundamental reason why Western pioneering company can continue to prosper in this global industry. Not so much about doing things more or less the same, but completely change the foundational knowledge that they acquire and assimilate. Yeah. So I think, you know, as a listener, it's in some ways you can think about um, other people's learnings and stuff and you can discount saying, oh, that only applies to their industry. Right. And we get to let ourselves off the hook from, and we can go back to putting our head in the sand. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. But but you know, justifiably, you know, you look at you look at um the science and the patents and the um you know, people who have the armies of lawyers to to defend their drug patents or things like this, right? And someone else can feel like, well, I'm not I'm not in an industry that's that complicated. How does that apply to me? Like for, for us at Milan, right? We've got the shows that you know, like the podcast we're doing today, and then we've got our management consulting side where we're doing our leadership training and teaching people about enterprise excellence, right? How do you, how do you help the whole organization do better instead of just management thinking changing? So, so something like that, uh, the, the management consulting world, the corporate training world, um, give me an example of, of for us, how, how you think that might change or how we would, what questions we would need to ask ourselves for management consulting industry, particularly, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. For the for the corporate training side of management consulting. Sure. Um, so there are two parts of the question here, because you're right. There are times that uh, executive manager would, would tell me, look, how would I understand your your proposition and explain why for drug discovery, the Western pioneer continue to 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 lead the global industry but what if my industry is not that much of uh scientific driven right mm-hmm. what if my industry in terms of knowledge discipline is kind of stagnate 
Uh, does that mean that, you know, I'm going to be like the automaker from Detroit getting disrupted by <laughs> others? Um, you know, you're talking about management consulting firm. How do we think about this issue? So before I go back to the management consulting firm, I want to be more provocative. And here is an industry or a company that has been around with us for a long time. And yet they are making very mundane products. Even more boring than arguably consulting services. Okay, okay. I'm thinking about you know detergent, natural soap, and 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 disposable diapers. And this is Procter and Gamble. Okay. Now, if you think for P and G for a moment, right? They have very little IP, in fact. And if you know companies making automotive or heavy machineries, they are subject to copycat competition. Then P and G should have gone destroyed by latecomers long time ago. And yet today. Today you're looking at PNG. They are still leading play across the world. Mm-hmm. So I get curious. How come PNG is able to charter an outcome similar to almost like this pharmaceutical firm, and yet their product feels so mundane and low tech? So it turns out, as I was going through the archive of the company, it turns out when they established the company before during the 19th century, Mr. Procter and Mr. Gamble, they were forming a partnership, and all they've done is to manufacture natural soap at scale. So because in Cincinnati, the headquarters still today, the headquarters in the Ohio, one of the big big industry clusters is meatpacking. They use a lot of division of labor. So long time before Henry Ford's assembly line, P&G have already taken on this inspiration of building big factory based on meatpacking district, right? So they put in automatic mixer. They automate as much of the manufacturing process as possible. So making soap at scale. Now. Around the 1920, color printing becomes very much fashionable things. So P&G begins to put on a lot of advertisement based on color print, and then radio comes along. They observe that homemaker or housewife love to get entertained when they do household chore. So they put in opera show to entertain their audience, and it's being known as the soap opera. That's how it came about. Then television came along, and then they continue to sponsor shows on television. Everything they do is based on consumer psychology. They need to understand what causes a consumer to make a purchase purchase decision. So in many ways, again, it's this integration beyond just building big factory based on mechanical engineering, but moving into new knowledge discipline based on consumer psychology. Now there are advertiser. Who are happy to take the job for PNG, but PNG decided to build that knowledge in-house. It's sort of today that people talk about: should we outsource our data analytics to IT support group, or should we build it in-house inside our own company? Similar discussion inside PNG. They insource that consumer psychology know-how inside the organization. Now, then after the Second World War, they begins to manufacture the first synthetic detergent. It's called Thai brand. In the wake of the launch of the Tide, the world's first synthetic detergent, the number of chemists basically tripled inside PNG. So from then on, organic chemistry becomes the foundational knowledge for everything that they do, from laundry soap all the way to uh, all the ways to other product as well. Well, so and can I? The, can yeah, I? Go ahead. I want to. I want to talk about part of this. Well, you know, let's do this. Let's take a quick sponsor break, and then I actually want to go back to the advertising part for one second because I want to. I've Sounds got a couple great. questions about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, everybody, let's take one second, listen, take a minute here, and listen to uh, the sponsors that make this show possible, and we'll be right back. Okay, so Howard, right before the sponsor break, I, I was yeah. interrupting you because I want to go back to this idea of PNG and and their adaptation. And I think that you bring up such a good point, and I, I just feel like it needs to get emphasized, and I kind of want to internalize it more myself. Because you talked about they went from manufacturing soap the way everyone else did, which would have made them highly vulnerable to a latecomer, lower cost, didn't have any R&D, right, copycatting them. But they go adopt the essentially assembly line type of methodology from the meatpacking plant. And so even though they're still producing the same product, they haven't actually innovated the product. They've innovated something else in the process, right? And then same thing when you talk about the advertising, how they, Mm -hmm. you know, for us, we take advertising so for granted, but it's funny today if you read the advertising news and they talk about native advertising and, and with this fresh thing of like, companies paying you know wired magazine or the wall street journal to put in an article that's not actually from the wall street journal but kind of looks like it is and it kind of fits but it's brought to you by chase bank or whatever it's this new thing called native advertising right where procter and gamble did it so much that we literally Mm -hmm. decades later still call them soap operas right that's Um, so true and i guess when you say that i was just thinking about like those organizations who Maybe they don't innovate their product, but they innovate how you can get financing for it. So all of a sudden, all these people who weren't buying it because they couldn't afford it, now there's a different type of financing, and, and it's they've gone after non-consumption to grow their market. Um, am, I, am I kind of going down the same track that you're, that you're saying there, or, or tell me what that makes you think? That's, that's pretty much it. In many ways, there are different ways of improving your product. One is based on R&D. And what we saw in the early phase of PNG is not so much about changing the soap ingredient, but what they've done is to leverage this mechanical engineering to expand the scale of uh, the economies of scale. When everybody is still doing artisanal manufacturing, hand-dipped candles and uh, handmade soap, this gives PNG a competitive advantage. However, your observation is absolutely right. If they stay within the first knowledge discipline at max, they will simply be a low-cost provider trying to fan off other competition because a white soap is a white soap. But what they've done is to move into a whole new knowledge discipline called consumer psychology and continue to lead the way how you persuade consumer to buy. So it's this idea that in order to ensure the health of your core business, you have to invest in adjacent knowledge disciplines so that your product can really either stand out from the marketplace or you really help resolve some of the customer pain point along the way. So finance, right? One is, of course, you could simply do it with a bank as a joint venture, for example. But even so, how do you set up that joint venturing? That's a new capability, or you decided to do it in-house, then of course the credit scoring is also a new type of knowledge discipline an organization needs to embrace. Well, so I want to keep going, and, and I know we're getting down to the end of episode one here, so we'll, we're going to keep talking about this concept in episode two, but before, before we finish, maybe one more question. Do you have any advice for those of us who are either um, growing an organization or maybe we're in an established organization that we want to transform it? This idea of um, discovering adjacencies. You know, I, I love that term because uh, one of my other favorite authors, uh, 
Stephen Johnson in his book, Where Good mm -hmm. Ideas Come From, he's always talking about like those innovations come from the adjacent possible. You know, you can't, you can't skip to a technology where all the parts of it won't be invented for a hundred years. You know, you have to go to something that is outside the comfort zone, but within reach kind of, kind of approach. I don't right. know if you'd define it differently, but mm -hmm. if you had yeah. advice for the rest of us on how we can look at what n none of our competitors are doing that will differentiate us, how do you generate that thinking or in your mind, what's some advice for, for how to go out and approach that ourselves? Yeah, I mean, um, the definition of a corporate strategy or effective strategy is really around how do you leverage your unique asset and deliver competitive punch in the marketplace. And the way we think about reinvention is not so much around jumping into a completely new type of venture or forest so far distant that you don't even have any competitive advantage. Uh, when I see companies successfully reinvent themselves, it's precisely, it's not just think outside the box, but think around the box. So, and here's the trick, right? Because whenever you <laughs> like go into... You need, to, you need to like trademark that, think around the box. And, and, what, because... what, and are you saying like, think about the things that are near that box, but outside of it? Is that your point? It's sort of outside, but not too far out. Okay. So that whatever adjacency product or services you provide can actually reinforce the core health of your offering, right? You, you think about Lego, for example. They're selling plastic bricks. In the age of mobile game and, you know, all these things, no one should buy. But they are still the most valuable toy company on the face of the planet. But they don't just do plastic bricks. They have movies, they have games, everything around that. All those adjacencies to reinforce the core brand of their offering. Now, the funny thing, of course, is a lot of these adjacencies in terms of profitability is way lower than the core offering. Now, if you only measure success across your business portfolio using EBIT or earning or profitability, inevitably, you're going to shut down all these initiatives. But the reason they have all these uh, projects around or all these offering around because they are critical to reinforce the leading position of your core product as well. So I think it's critical for manager to really have a differentiated KPI across their business portfolio and understand what are the primary driver so that your product can continue to achieve long-term success despite patent may expire, despite copycat competition. I love it. I think it's a great place to end for, for part one of the interview. Everybody, please, please tune back in and catch part two of our interview with Howard. Thanks again, Howard. Thank you. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Sir, yes, sir! Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.